Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Sustainability is the heart of animal agriculture. Throughout history, we focused on environmental stewardship and sustainability. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts at the Real Science Exchange. Tonight, we'll help move that sustainability vision forward for the entire agricultural community and bring some practical and executable ideas to the forefront. In May 2021, the Florida Ruminant Nutrition Conference's pre-conference symposia titled Your Practical Guide to Achieving Net Zero Carbon Emissions welcomed five speakers and a Q&A session to follow. What you're about to hear is that Q&A session. Full presentations can be found on Balkim's YouTube channel, and the link will be in the show notes. To get us started, I'd like to introduce our guests and my co-hosts for this session. Dr. Frank Mittlerner from the University of California, Davis. Dr. Jim Wallace from Dairy Management, Inc. Dr. Juan Tricarico, also from DMI. Caleb Harper of Dairy Scale for Good. And my co-host for tonight, Dr. Jose Santos from the University of Florida. We have a lot of questions to get to today, so we won't be going around uh, the table like we normally do and having everybody share what's in their glass. But let's all toast to a successful event and to helping farmers feel more confident in sharing how agriculture is part of the carbon solution. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. I couldn't wait. I already drank it. <laughs> you already started. <laughs> That's going to make it a lot livelier here, Juan. That's excellent. So uh, to get us started here, I, I think, uh, Frank, we're going we're gonna to toss the first question to you. It, it appears that the industry has settled on 2050 as the, the target date to, be, to, to achieve net carbon uh, zero. So why, why 2050? Why not 2045, 2040? And uh, what, are the, what are the key obstacles or, or bottlenecks in our way from uh, getting this done quicker? Uh, well, I don't know the answer as to what the deadline uh, is all about. <clears throat> but uh, I think it's really good to have, to have deadlines, you know, to have goals uh, set um, to, to really be in a position where you have quantified the impacts your industry has. And then... Once you have a goal, then you can set milestones as to how you want to reach um, your goal and um, and what those intervals are. Um, now, in my opinion, personal opinion, um, I am personally more interested in the impact that this industry has on warming than on carbon. But that's just my perf my personal opinion. I, I call it the NZI, the Net Zero Initiative. But I really call it the net zero warming initiative. That's that's what I'm all about, um, because that's what the Paris Climate Accord is about. They are about limiting our impact on warming to less than two two degrees centigrade, and I th really think that we need to um, keep that in mind because there are certain parts of the dairy sector we cannot get to net zero. For example, the belching part, you cannot get cattle to stop belching, and as long as they belch. Uh, methane, you will not uh, get that to zero and you can't just offset that with, let's say, planting trees. That is the reason why I think uh, the focus should be on warming and also that warming, um, that climate neutrality, in my opinion, is uh, achievable much faster, much more aggressively. And, um, and in my opinion, that's what it's all about. 
So I think it's really good that the industry has quantified its impacts. I think it's really good that they have an aggressive um, plan ahead as to how to achieve the goals. Um, I think in addition to looking into uh, carbon impacts, they should also and in, in heavily look into warming impacts. I think I'll uh, throw the same question out to our DMI friends. Uh, gentlemen, take your pick who wants to answer it. But, but I think you guys settled on, on the year uh, 2050. Do you know how you came to that date? I can jump in first. Um, so I, I, I don't, I don't want to say that it was arbitrary, um, but I think what we did was we looked around, or I think what the, the, the leadership who set that goal looked around at where others in the world were falling on similar um, programs. And that, that 2050 number represented something that offered a bit of continuity uh, with the balance of the world. So that, that I think is, was, was one driver. Um, I think another driver is, is that it's, it's 30 years out and it offers a, a real runway to engage and adopt and adapt new practices, new technologies, develop new markets. There's a lot of work. There's a, there are certainly research. There are certainly knowledge gaps that have to be filled between now and then. And that 30-year window, when this was initially adopted in 2020, I think really offered um, a, a bit of runway to do that. And I, I'd like to just maybe ask Frank, uh, just kind of building on what you said and perhaps asking you a, a question kind of background-wise on, on your thinking about um, uh, warming versus carbon neutrality. I agree. Offsetting the enteric piece, that's, that's going to be, well, that, that's, it's, it's an impossibility, right? We, we, we recognize cows are always going to generate methane, um, enteric methane. But what if, and maybe even before I put the what if out there, if, if we think about the other three prints on the dairy, the manure piece, I think we would all agree we can do a really effective job at offsetting um, the manure piece. Energy, no problem. Um, feed production. I think there are some strong cases to be made that we can get to zero. And I think we can even make some strong cases to go negative on, on feed production. Now that's certainly open to debate. There are a lot of uh, unanswered questions. There are a lot of questions about permanence that I think have to be addressed. Um, so certainly I acknowledge that. So using that as a backdrop and coming back to the enteric component, what if we are able to successfully adopt and integrate technologies like what you described relative to enteric or, or feed additives. And I, I heard you use the number of up to 50%. So thinking about some of the numbers that, that are out there, and I'll, I guess I'll point to the California LCA, which I, I think, and I'm just speaking off the top of my head, puts enteric somewhere around 0.44 kilograms CO2e per kilogram of fat and protein corrected milk. Some of the work that, that we've done um, as we built out some of the background work on this, suggests that through efficient feeding, um, that we have a, a path there to maybe reduce that down into, let's say, the 0.25, maybe 0.3 kilogram per kilogram range before we apply any sort of a feed additive. If we were then able to reduce it by 50%, we're now getting down in that range that, let's say, is 0.12 to 0.15. And I think when we look at the aspirational piece of carbon sequestration, we can make a pretty good case that we can be in the 0.5 to 0.1. 
um, before we even think about the crops like gen genetic, genetically modified crops that would increase soil carbon sequestration. So I start to think, is there a path there? Is there a possibility given advancements in technology that we may be able to overcome that, 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 that challenge of enteric methane? So I'll stop there. Curious where your head is at on that. Yeah, so <clears throat> the ones, the feed additives that we find uh, to be very effective, unfortunately, uh, have the potential to have unintended consequences. For example, one of the more prominent ones that reduces enteric methane quite strongly leads to a situation where when it passes through the cow, it also makes its way into the manure. And once you land apply that, land apply that manure to the, to the ground, to the field, then that manure generates more nitrous oxide than the control animal's manure, offsetting the gains that we made through enteric methane. Oftentimes we don't even know that yet because this has not been researched. We are all looking into what does the enteric emission mitigation uh, look like without looking at the life cycle of what happens, for example, with the manure of those animals treated with these additives. And so now we are finding some of those things in the more effective uh, feed uh, additives. And uh, we need to make sure that we really know not just the intended, but also the unintended consequences of feeding all of those things. Uh, most of them are still in the experimental phases, as you well know. So I do think that a strong reduction of enteric is possible. I do think so. Uh, I would think that it will amount to something like 20 to 30%. That is my hope, okay? If, if we get more than I'm excited beyond belief. Um, but that still leaves a big chunk left on the table. And uh, while I do think that we can offset some of that through other mechanisms that you described, I don't think that we can get to net carbon. So carbon zero, I don't think we can achieve. And most importantly, I don't think we need to achieve because of the uniqueness of methane. For methane, you don't need to go to net zero, as I showed in my slides. What we need to do is we need to reduce methane so much so that it offsets the net contributions of nitrous oxide and CO2 to a point where the reduction of methane will offset the other greenhouse gases and we will reach a point of climate neutrality, meaning that sector will not affect the climate in any negative way. And in my opinion, that is the goal that we should strive for. So if I were in the automobile industry, I would say, no, no, it's all about carbon, carbon neutrality, net zero carbon, because it takes a net zero CO2 to stop the warming. That's why that's important for the fossil fuel sector and most other sectors, but it's not the same for agriculture. For agriculture, we do not need to get methane to zero. We just need to reduce it enough to offset other gases. So I'm not saying I'm not saying uh, one is better or worse than the other. I'm saying, if that is your goal, this is a very aggressive goal and one that's very difficult to achieve. I think one that um, is in direct uh, relation to the Paris Climate Accord is that of achieving climate neutrality. The Europeans they talk about that, by the way. They are they are all about climate neutrality. They don't use carbon neutrality over there anymore. They use climate neutrality. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, excellent discussion, gentlemen. That's exactly what we're looking for here at the the exchange. And Dr. Mitloner, you're you're a you're a 
a seasoned veteran at this. This is your second trip to the pub. So <laughs> thank you for that. Um, I have failed to introduce my co-host for today's uh, proceedings, which is Dr. Jose Santos. Uh, he's uh, been invited to participate uh, in the discussions today, and he's also going to be um, throwing some questions out to, to the team. So, Jose, do you have one ready for us? Yes, I do. So this is for everyone there. Uh, so one of the premises of uh, mitigating uh, carbon or, or I guess, uh, warming uh, is to apply technology, yeah? So everything that we talked about today here involves application of technology to improve efficiency of production. So how do you reconcile improving efficiency of production with the current movement of society away from technology use? You look at some places in the world, uh, you know, they are changing production practices, not necessarily to implement the technology that would increase efficiency. So how do we do this? to accommodate the needs of society with the needs of a producer to be less impactful uh, with production practices. And that's for anyone who wants to tackle this question. <laughs> okay, I'll jump in. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's a big question in my mind because I came out of more or less the greenhouse industry for background, you know, the control environment ag industry where most of the learning that I was doing was directly applicable to greenhouse. And I look at greenhouses in the Netherlands and I look at the extreme efficiency of which they are able to control gas. You know, they are able to control heat and cooling using things like geothermal sinks, um, are able to control, you know, the sun's effectiveness by filtering for only photosynthetically active radiation into those greenhouses and bouncing off things that are not gonna grow new plants. Um, so, you know, I do see the trend uh, that we're working in similar trend line to greenhouse. And, you know, as I go across the country and I see the new dairies being built, you know, oftentimes they're being built as cross ventilated barns and cross ventilated barns really have roots in that greenhouse because they have things like, a, you know, a chilling wall and air circulation through the barn, keeping them at constant temperature between the 60s and the 70s you know, for milk production gain. So I look at that, that efficiency as the future. And then I also think that the storytelling is so lacking in that space. And I, I applaud Frank's mission in life to tell that story um, about, you know, if you want to feed the world and if you want it to be affordable and if you want it to be available to the most amount of people and you do not want to only cater for those that can afford a super premium product, which is nutritionally enhanced or also you know, environmentally enhanced, I think you have to deal with the issue of scale and we have to storytell about it more and we have to bring in scientists that are reputable with third party kind of halo effect to come in and talk about the cow's health and the cow's life and why we do the things the way that we do. And that, you know, juxtaposed against a different system that may look more bucolic, that may look more friendly, maybe or maybe it's not. Uh, and, and that's a hard conversation to have uh, for a consumer that hasn't been a part of that, has only seen the effects of that to the detriment and not to the positive. And so I think it's, it's programs that let people in. It's programs that do open discussions without fear of retribution um, it's, it's how do we cultivate a dialogue 
for that efficiency because you know when we're a world which we are where there is like 20 more 1 million person cities being built in India in the next five years you cannot confront that by saying everything's going to look the way you think it should look because it's because it's nice in your mind you have to think about how do we feed those people how do we feed them affordably and with the nutrition that they need so it's a it's a nuanced conversation that is very hard to have without emotion uh, but I think we have to try. I can add something. It's also paradoxical because in, in many instances of our life, every single one of the people that live in, on earth want to have the best technology available to them. But yet, you know, as it, as it uh, pertains to, to food, it seems that there's a, a, a narrative out there primarily fueled by marketing you know, that goes against technology. And so it's, um, it's a perception issue, uh, in, in my opinion. And, you know, this one is one, one of the great examples of this divide is when you talk about GMO, GMO crops, and, and you look at the, at the evidence and you see that in fact, scientists largely support GMO crops and, and the public mostly oppose GMO crops. So there's, there's a disconnect. And it's, a, and it's a perception, you know, narrative driven. It's not an evidence discussion. But, but uh, most yeah. people are moved by emotions and not necessarily by science. And that's the challenge that we face, correct? Absolutely. Well, and I think, I think scientists, want... scientists also have emotions <laughs> and scientists also have values, you know? It's just that for some- So I get carried away. Well, I think to build on the, that one, you know, GMO for most people came out of left field in a documentary and they had no idea and that created fear and that fear was created by lack of knowledge and lack of knowledge sharing. And that was a very, very tight intellectual property landscape in which this was a monster out of a closet for most people. Uh, and I think you cannot approach the future of food with a tight intellectual property landscape and without telling the story or you will absolutely be rebuked. I want to add something to this discussion, which I find very insightful. I, um, I don't think that people are anti-technology. In fact, I think that people overall are pro-technology. That's not just uh, these kind of things here that people are in favor of. But, you know, I teach a class here at UC Davis with 300 undergraduate students. And I asked them a question about health. I asked them, so if you wake up in the morning with a splitting headache, what do you do? They look at me as if I'm an idiot. They say, pop a pill. Okay, if you want to prevent pregnancy, what do you do? Yeah, pop another pill. What if your dad suffers a, a severe heart attack and is in need of a pacemaker and defibrillator? Would you be in favor or not? Everybody, and they all have their personal response system, their clicker, everybody says yes. So they highly appreciate those technologies that keep them healthy or save their, their parents or whatever. They highly appreciate that. But the same people who are so open to the use of technology when it comes to their own health are adverse to technology when it comes to food production. And that's really surprising. I mean, a tomato today has more patents in it than this thing, okay? So we are talking about a very technology and um, intellectual property and so on, intense food world we live in. And, um, and, and people seem to have a problem with the one with a food issue around technology, but not with the other. Hell, it's going to the same body. In some respect, it matters, and others, it doesn't. And we have to ask ourselves, why is that? 
Why is it that food versus health is treated so differently by people, even though it's all going to the same body? What is that? What have we done wrong? Well, I think I it's... Said, Mark, sorry, uh, I'm just going to say very quickly, you know, I think there's a marketing element associated to that, Frank. There's a marketing mm -hmm. element, you know, of, 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 of portions of the, of, the, of the economy going out there to create business and, and they don't have to follow standards. Mm -hmm. They can actually have websites where they say you can pop a pill to be more alert so that you can study better. I'm not making this up, this is real. And the evidence that they use to market such pills is anecdote. Oh, I felt better, you know, and I, there's, there's no measurement, objective measurement. So there is an element of, of perception and an element of marketing that contributes to this, uh, to this paradox um, out there. Sure. Yeah. But but even in the in the dairy industry itself, yeah. If you go back a few years, uh, when California had the uh, marketing campaign, it was a lot more appealing to show two cows in the hill in a pasture than to show what really happens on a dairy farm, because probably the average person out there perceives a cow in a pasture as being more friendly, yeah although they don't realize how tough it is on a July day in California or in Florida or in a December day in Wisconsin, yeah? So, but that's how we sell ideas. Eh? They think that uh, it's always springtime in New Zealand. You know, when I, when, I, when I walk my dog in the morning through Davis, California, I always see uh, dairy trucks driving by, so creamery trucks driving by. And what's depicted on those trucks? Almost always, some happy California cows on, on pasture overseeing the ocean, the red barn in the background and so on. And that is, a, uh, that is an image that the, that the public has started or has, has learned to love. They love that, okay? They appreciate that. The problem is when they drive by a conventional dairy, that's not what they see, okay? They don't see cows on pasture, they see cows in free stalls and they say, well, I want this, I don't want that. So what they are telling me and what is reality is not in alignment. And uh, I know from undergraduate students in my classes, they say that they feel um, they feel that this is um, that this is um, how should we call that? Um, you know, false advertisement almost. You know, because we are we are portraying the industry as if it were pastoral, when indeed it's not pastoral, and we are portraying that that red barn image as if it were the gold standard, when indeed it's not the gold standard. I mean. Think about those gold, those red barn days when the cows were, uh, you know, tied toward uh, poles, uh, you know, tied tie style, tie style balls, and hand milked, and uh, the manure went into the next creek, and the worker conditions were horrendous, and the financial viability was not, not existent. Was that really a more sustainable time than what we have today? I, I seriously question that. Wish a few people could have been with me that have that opinion last weekend when I was in West Texas. I got caught in my first haboob, which is what is known as a 60 mile an hour sandstorm on a pasture based dairy. Uh, and I was out there uh, and we headed for the milk tanks uh, and we crawled under the milk tanks and we waited till the haboob passed. You know, there is reality uh, and then there is fiction and probably for too long, the industry has allowed the fiction to exist um, because of the consumer preference. And I think you've got you've to embrace transparency and it's not going to be easy. You know, it, yeah. it's really not. And how do we get the people that have trust 
which is, you know, promoters of things uh, to understand that reality is probably a big gap that we have. And I think we're working towards it is to, you know, what is the version of dirty jobs? You know, I know they've done it in dairy, but what is that, that experience that shows you why everything it is the way that it is, that is trustable. Um, and, and it probably can't come from within the industry, unfortunately. You know, uh, I remember going to, um, to visit a farm and, and I know that everybody here on screen, but also the majority of probably of the people in the attendee list, I went through the attendee list and I know that the majority of those people will relate to what I'm gonna say. You've been to a farm and you've walked into a, into a barn where you said, wow, this barn is great. You know, the cows are comfortable, right? And more than a year ago, because you know we haven't had in person haven't had in person meetings for quite some time, we walked into such a barn with a big group of people that work in the dairy industry, and one of the one of the persons next to me said, I, I, I made the comment, wow, this barn is great. Look how comfortable it is. You know, I mean there's quiet, the cows are just going about their business, you know, most of them are lying, they're ruminating. And the person said, Yeah, but you know, it looks so uh it looks so artificial. It looks like a factory setting. And I looked at the person and I said, yeah, probably so does your living room. And yet, you know, you're comfortable sitting in the couch in your living room. So it's, it's exactly the point that you're trying to make, Caleb. We, we, almost everything that is done at the dairy farm, if it were explained to, 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 to the public, like, Immediately, you know, without some kind of a introduction or context, it would sound as foreign as GMO. Yeah, but at the same time, we live in this world, and you know, I was an advisor to a nonprofit because I believed in their mission in this world of cell ag, and you know, I believed in the scientific mission of understanding the things. I didn't believe in necessarily the claims, but like that world is moving forward with an amount of venture capital that is almost unimaginable. Yet, yet, what does a cell eat? A cell eats fetal bovine serum in that world. What creates fetal bovine serum? A cow. What drives the price of heifers in barns? Cell ag. So it's, it's, it, when you talk about factories and then the future that's being spun, no one's going below the level of the future that's being spun to say, wait a minute, so this is fermentation, okay? So this is, you know, what are the, what are the cells eating? How, where are those cells coming from? What's the life cycle analysis of keeping a a cow as, a, as a, a source of fetal bovine serum. I mean, it's just questions that are not being asked about the future, future version of food that I was always very interested in knowing. And then, you know, I come onto this side and I, and I see, holy cow, you know, like no one questions that future of ag and what its tail is because it's new. So it's weird that we say that people don't like technology. How is that possible when billions of dollars of venture capital are pouring into these very factory-like, exactly factory-like scenarios of the future. And it's just, it just takes discourse like this and we need to get out of our, our network of influence and into there somehow, you know, instead of saying, you know, I'm scared of that. It's like, no, okay, let's talk. Cause maybe there's a future of food that involves cell ag on a dairy. Maybe there's some combination of these things. Maybe there's not, maybe it's never viable, but I think it's, it's this, the marketing that you pointed to one and then the reality behind it that, that is yet to come. So let's just uh, change gears a little bit uh, in this discussion here. There's uh, 
lots of topics to discuss here today, but there's one here that probably applies to the debate, which is on additives and reducing methanogenesis. So one of, one of the, the comments that were made here, or questions, actually there's three or four, is that uh, reducing methanogenesis seldom improves animal production. There, there's some exceptions, and I think it was mentioned at Monensin here. But if you look at the examples of products that, that target methanogenesis specifically, such as uh, 3-nitroxypropanol, uh, there is no good data showing that there is a benefit to production. So two questions. Uh, if those things were to be implemented as technology to reduce the impact of animal production, who should pay for that? The producer, the consumer, or government programs? And then the second point is, if methanogenesis is reduced, what are the consequences in terms of where is those reducing equivalents going, that hydrogen? Is that an impact on the environment? So maybe this, the second part of the question first. It depends on how strongly you reduce enteric methane as to what happens to the hydrogen. If you reduce methane, let's say, by 20 30%, then there's no issue around hydrogen. If you use, let's say, Asparagopsis taxiformis, this red seaweed, which can reduce enteric methane much stronger, then there is a buildup of hydrogen and the change of pH, then you might have an issue. Um, with respect to the first part of the question. So the issue is for the animal or for the environment, you're thinking? For the, for the animal, for the animal, because then you will have impacts on performance when you, when you go too far, uh, because you still need a sink for that hydrogen. Um, but lower uh, scenarios are not a problem. There are some feed additives that both reduce methane and improve performance. For example, components in milk and feed efficiency. I have seen that with my own eyes and uh, there are and will be additives that will be very cost efficient, okay? Very cost effective. Um, and I didn't just take that from the company, but I actually talked to to people, including uh, commercial dairies that have used it and that have shown me what it does financially. And there, there is some, some real good potential uh, in some of those, those additives. Um, so what was the first part again? Uh, well, I'll launch into the first part because that's okay. what I mentioned in brief on my presentation is until we have a carbon credit protocol for an enteric reduction, enteric methane reduction, you know, it has to rely on production gain or else it's just a cost that a dairy farm has to pay and they're either not going to do it or they're not going to do it very happily. Uh, and and it, we got to avoid that future at all costs. So in terms of CARBS efforts, and I know Frank supports on that stuff, a lot of folks on this call and folks in our community support on those efforts, you know, a carbon credit protocol that values the reduction of enteric methane related to an additive assigns then a carbon equivalent unit and an economic value to that reduction. And with the expectation under this administration to continue to grow the value of carbon per unit, we as a dairy industry need to be positioned to take advantage of that dollar value. I showed it at $12 a carbon you know, ton. And frankly, all three of these people are way more qualified than me to talk about how much tonnage we could expect from feeding an additive but I don't care if it's one ton, you know, or half a ton or three tons, I need it to be valued above, you know, at, at least the $12 that's kind of middle of the road, voluntary programs and compliance programs today. But we as a dairy industry need to ride that. And in Europe, they've done it much more successfully than we have. They have a higher price of carbon 
and they peg their additive prices and their additive returns to that price of carbon. And, and the dairy farmer in most cases doesn't have to pay for the additive at all because they do a profit share between the person that makes the additive, the carbon market value and the dairy farmer. And I think our goal is to make sure the dairy farmer is on the winning side of that proposition you know, in the future when we expect carbon prices to go higher. Caleb, I have a question for you. Um, Nestle and Starbucks uh, are interested in, in supporting the use of feed additives, and I think yes, even financially supporting it, right, to, to yes, the sir. farmers. So to me, to me, that's one potential avenue that's not governmental linked, or not government linked, but industry driven. And I find that I find that approach quite interesting. I could see that also happening in the meat uh, on the meat side of things, where McDonald's or Burger King or so might say, if our supply chains are using feed additives, then that reduces our our greenhouse gas footprint, and that's what we want to do. And so we are incentivizing that financially. I think on the government side, I served on the task force for the California Air Resources Board to establish offsets for agriculture. And the number one recommendation our task force made was to establish a enteric emission offset protocol. Whether or not that will happen, we don't know yet, but the task force made that very clear that this is urgently needed. And um, when you look at the finances, some of these feed additives cost something like four cents per cow per, per day. But uh, particularly for those that actually change components, milk components or efficiencies, uh, the kickback can be quite a bit above that. And so um, I think there will be quite some interest in the dairy industry. So, so Frank, you, you talked a little bit about what I assume are kind of the essential oils as feed additives, maybe, maybe, maybe not just those. Do you feel, well, maybe I put this a different way. How far away do you believe we are from having minimum levels of evidence to support enteric claims for some of those products? And I won't name the products, but I know you know them. Mm. in such a way that we could create the type of carbon markets that Caleb is talking about and support those with good science. Yeah, so I think, I think well, I know one of the, the additives is commercially available. Others are likely to come online pretty soon. Um, <clears throat> but for some of the new molecules, um, we have to have more information. When I, when I saw this uh, paper from Canada about the unintended consequence of having more emissions, greenhouse gas emissions resulting from the manure than what we saved from enteric, uh, it really daunted on me that we have to make very clear that when we do these studies, that we look at the whole picture because we don't want these negative trade-offs. Uh, we want to pre prevent them by all means because can you imagine we mass roll out something and then later comes out um, there is an unintended consequence of major proportions. And you know, there are also, and I also want to mention that, there's all this talk about carbon and greenhouse gases and so on. But let's not forget, let's not forget, it's not just about carbon. There are other issues as well, like ammonia or you know, nitrates and so on. We cannot reduce carbon emissions, for example, methane and induce uh, reactive nitrogen emissions, uh, let's say nitrous oxide or ammonia or nitrates. So we have to really have all of that on our radar screen because uh, otherwise we play, um, you know, otherwise we're in a, bad, in a bad situation. So for all of these additives, and there are not too many, it's half a dozen or so, we actually need to, to have a comprehensive understanding of what they do 
not just to reducing methane, but also what happens beyond that. Just to I think, speak on I the water quality, the water quality piece, Frank, you know, that's where I was you know, saying that I couldn't cover it very quickly on, or I did cover it too quickly on the water quality crediting schemes that are coming about, you know, in terms of being able to view a dairy as a phosphorus removal or a nitrogen removal system. Uh, there are one-off deals spread around the country between upstream uh, contributors and downstream dairies uh, that are beginning to value dairies like a municipal water treatment plant if they can quantify the exact amount of phosphorus or nitrogen that they did not apply um, you can actually have an upstream you know let's say a small city that's able to expand because municipal treatment facilities are very very expensive per pound of phosphorus removal for example whereas on a dairy some of the technologies that we were just discussing you know especially the evaporative systems can actually quantify to the gram how much of these things did not go further to impact water quality. And so Nutrient has this grant with the EPA right now to set up a water quality credit trading uh, system in Wisconsin as a kind of a, a marketplace where buyers are on one side, those are cities or upstream entities, uh, and sellers are on one side and they can just put the credit in and get market value instead of these kind of one-off deals that have been going on. But I see a huge future for dairy in being recognized as an ecosystem service that we can quantify what we did not put out there, that we can find value from it, that it will be more efficient than the way that they do it with municipal systems. And that could have just to your point, an equal impact to the actual ecology you know, of our environment as doing the work that we're doing on gases. So one of the things that uh, people often ask, you know, like we, and I think in the video that Frank mentions that he just uh, uh, did with YouTube, you talk about cattle consuming fiber, yeah? non-edible products for humans. But obviously in modern production, if we want to apply technology, dairy and beef cattle eat a lot of uh, uh, potentially edible products such as corn, yeah? corn, soybean. One of the questions that people sent here is uh, what about the, the environmental impact of that, of consuming edible products? But I'm going to piggyback on that and just tie it up two other things so we can cover three questions in one. Uh, so assuming that, yes, cattle eat not just forage uh, or not just grass in general, uh, do the calculations of uh, carbon use uh, in dairies Consider the consumption of non-edible products uh, that is transforming edible products for humans, such as milk and meat. So lots of byproducts that humans would never consume going to cattle diets. And lastly, the same way there's been assessment of greenhouse gases emission for production of animal products, has there been the same sort of assessment for production of these uh, vegan products or these replacements for uh, dairy and uh, uh, meat products. I would like to address some aspects of that question, Jose. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm, we're currently sitting on a on a scientific paper that's under re review at the moment that quantifies byproduct use across dairy farms across the entire United States. So I'm going to share 
uh, one of the highlights from that paper. Um, basically, on average, dairy cows consume 8.2 kilograms of dry matter in the form of byproducts. So it's a substantial amount of byproducts that the dairy that the dairy industry utilizes. When it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, uh, the thing gets a little bit more complicated because in terms of accounting for emissions, the minute that the farmer purchases those byproducts, they're a raw material. So they also come with a burden of emissions, you know, just as a crop would, you know, that it's that it's cultivated exclusively for the consumption of the cow, like a corn plant that goes into corn silage. Um, so from that perspective, byproducts are also a source of emissions. Uh, in this particular paper, what we did is we run a scenario where we also examined um, what the emissions would be from a diet that doesn't contain byproducts. You know, so if you were to feed cows for that same level of productivity, but with, without any byproducts whatsoever, you know, you'd have to replace those with, with crops. Like I said, like corn silage as an example. And there are some circumstances where that turns out to be positive. You know, in some, in some of the regions in the country, there's actually a benefit in terms of a reduction in emissions uh, with the inclusion of byproducts. And in some instances, that's not the case. You know, the, the direction is the opposite. But, but if those byproducts were not to be used, it would become an even greater burden, yeah? To dispose yeah. of so, that. Yeah, so, so, so we, also, we also had another scenario where we looked at different fates for byproducts. So if you, if you uh, combust, let's say you burn those byproducts, you extract energy from them, you lose all the nutrients, right? And, and, and you also generate some emissions, you know, very little. If you put them in a composting file, uh, sorry, pile, you compost them, you can uh, recycle some of the nutrients because eventually that goes into a, a, into a soil amendment, but you also have emissions. Um, you have a, a few fold more emissions than if the cows eat them. And then finally, if they go into a landfill, you have way more emissions. So I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I'd have to open a, another one of the files here, but I hope to see this, this paper get accepted soon, crossing my fingers here, so that we can actually start talking about it and put some, some numbers out there for, for people to react to. Any other takers on this subject? Well, I think that your first part of the question dealt with what about crops that are imported onto the dairy and are those accounted for? And, and I think that's a pretty simple answer. Yeah, that they are accounted for in terms of how we think about boundaries around farms and LCA analyses. So that would be picked up in the overall assessment of the farm's environmental footprint, no question. And what about the replacement, like the fermentation products for dairy and the non-animal meat products? Has there been an assessment of what would have happened if we moved to that type of diet in terms of impact? Well, so maybe I say a few words to that. So in the, the dairy industry here in California, for example, feeds almost 50% co-products from other uh, crop production that without the dairy sector would uh, have a very different fate, a fate of probably rotting under the sky or you know whatever, going into landfills or so. Um, with respect to the alternatives, have alternatives to meat and milk been compared uh, 
to the original and what are their environmental footprints. I've seen a study, for example, that was done at UCLA that compared uh, the environmental footprint of dairy milk versus, let's say, almond juice. And what they found, and that was using GWP100, what they found was that, <clears throat> that the real milk uh, had a 10 times larger carbon footprint, but a 17 times, one seven, 17 times lower water footprint. So, um, you know, all this discussion around carbon and greenhouse gases is part of the overall, okay? So if you reduce, um, let's say, greenhouse gases from one product over the other, but induce uh, a much stronger water consumption in a place like California, well, then you have a problem, okay? So it is very important for us to consider trade-offs, as I said before. Uh, it's not all about greenhouse gases and take that from a person who spends a lot of time on greenhouse gases, but it's not all about greenhouse gases. It's also about all the other things that we need to uh, take into consideration. And that's not even just limited to the environmental stuff. It's also including other sustainability areas like animal welfare, animal health, worker issues, and so on. We have to look at sustainability in a holistic way. So since you mentioned, uh, uh, Frank, that you actually measure greenhouse gases, somebody mentioned here how accurate are those measurements. And obviously, cattle don't uh, uh, belch only methane. Uh, is, are those measurements taking into account total carbon, such as CO2, that may be released as well? The CO2 that's respired is not really counted as a net emissions of greenhouse gases. And the reason for that is that um, what the cow eats, the plants the cow eats, um, they had assimilated CO2 during their lifetime, right? So when the plant grows, it assimilates CO2 and traps it in its, in its tissues. When the cow then eats the plant, it releases that same CO2. That's why it's considered a wash. That's why respiration is not considered net emissions of greenhouse gases. So how precise, how accurate and precise are measurements of greenhouse gases from livestock? Well, they can be very accurate and precise. Uh, we, for example, we use uh, head chambers that, that really are snuck around the animal's head and we measure basically everything going in, into that animal and coming out of this animal, uh, at least the front end. Um, but we also have environmental chambers, small and large, that um, measure everything going in and coming out. And uh, last not least, there are, of course, also ways of measuring things on a farm, but that's much less uh, accurate and precise because there you now have um, issues such as meteorology that is that is messing with your instrumentation, changes in wind speed direction and so on, temperature and, and, and. I want to shift a little bit gears here. And uh, there were several questions about what about farm size, all this technology? How does it apply to, not everybody has a 3000 cow dairy and in many industries, farm sizes, like even the US industry, the, probably the average farm size in the US, if we wanna think of averages, if they mean anything, it's probably 300 and some cows today. So how, how do you apply all these tools, particularly in the post feeding the cow, yeah? Like handling nutrients. Uh, when you're dealing with uh, farms that don't have the, the sheer size that was discussed and shown here in the presentations. So I'll kick it off because uh, a lot of that was me, I suppose. Um, 
So first off, I would say that the enteric proposition is scaleless. Um, the feed production proposition is scaleless. Uh, and on the manure side, um, you know, you've seen digesters evolve for 20 years. Uh, they're ups, they're downs, they're goods, they're bads, they're uglies. Uh, now we are at the point where there are viable digesters at 500 cow dairy scale. Um, that took a lot of innovation and it mostly took a lot of market building. You know, you wouldn't have that proposition uh, at the 500 to 1000 cow scale if it weren't for the LCFS credit value, the RIN credit value stacked together with the value of that conventional natural gas. So when I think about what brings our scale down, I think about market building. And on nutrient recovery, those products, the water quality credits, even the CO2 credits attached, but let alone the new manure-based products that Jim was discussing and I was discussing, those markets are being built hopefully right now and hopefully as a result of our work. And that's what one of the other things that Nestle and Starbucks are trying to de-risk because they know to scale this, we need a market value proposition. We're at early days of this technology. You know, why is it at a scale, some of the bigger ones at a scale of 3000 cows? Because they were designed for small cities. They're coming out of municipal wastewater treatment. You know, the fundamental physics of these technologies are not limited to that. This, one of these companies designs a toilet, a single person toilet with the same sort of, you know, it's obviously changed a little bit, with the same sort of underlying technology for very specific use case. So, you know, and recently I've had one of the technologies in the evaporative space approach me, one of the companies, the vendors, and say they can do it at 800 cow scale. Well, that was lightning fast progress compared to digesters for scalability. And I really think it's going to start like this. The technologies that exist today at the scale at which they exist, you know, are primarily towards a municipal scale. That's gonna happen probably very quickly. Then followed quickly behind that is, is community use. So we're seeing, you know, look at CalBio in California. You know, you have networks of farms in which they all put their gas into one central and upgrading, uh, gas cleaning and upgrading facility today. And they're building out clusters across the state of California. Those dairymen have a chance at equity in that model. And those dairymen have the chance obviously of, of getting paid for the gas that they produce on their farm. In Wisconsin, they're currently building a $60 million, 16 digester community use model where it's either being piped or it's being trucked to this facility. So we're breaking down the barriers that way. I think that will happen for nutrient recovery because it's essentially, you know, in some cases, a bolt-on to those digesters that are going up all over the place. There is actually one of these systems at the larger scale on just straight raw manure in the state of Indiana running every day. So I think, you know, you'll follow the model of where were they designed for why, you know, that's municipal. Okay, that's where we are. It's a risky market. We need de-risking on those products. We need product partners. Our ag input partners are crucial to providing value in that space. They are not legislated to have renewable fertilizers. Maybe someday, like what California did for fuels, you'll see something like that for fertilizer to incentivize a market building, but they aren't today. So it has to be voluntary. Then community use, community asset to defray cost, then getting to the scale uh, of a single dairy in the you know, three to 500 cow range uh, is, is what I would think is most logical to happen. But given that, that I've been researching this for a year, looking at everyone's technologies that they have out there 
and that just two weeks ago, a new one came on the scene and said, I can do it at 800 to 1,000 cows. Now, I haven't seen it yet. I can't, you know, talk with, with confidence about it. But, you know, given that the first one of these nutrient recovery technologies came on the scene maybe two years ago, there is an obvious, you know, attempt and, and, a, and a belief that the market is coming for this. And so I think that's kind of my answer to the scale question. And of course, being part of the U.S. dairy industry, you know, all of our work is balanced against dairies of all sizes, but it's also balanced against market building and proof and demonstration. And that's really, to Frank's point, where some of the supply chain partners have been willing to put dollars in. So a dairy of 100 cows would be equivalent to a municipality of how many people? Can you give <laughs> us some parallel? So we Anybody know the gallons of human waste per day? We could do it on, a, you know, 12 <laughs> gallons per cow. Uh, I don't know how many gallons you guys produce. Uh, I'm eating a lot less lately. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I would think that in that model, the first thing is, you know, potential for community use. Uh, and how close are the clusters? Because it's all going to be about logistics. You know, manure contains a lot of water. Shipping water never really works economically. So it's got to be, you know, that's got to be figured out. But again, Everything can be figured out if those products have a good market value, fill a niche for organic products or fill a niche for renewable products as an alternative to pit mining phosphorus and using the Haber-Bosch process to create nitrogen, which burns natural gas. So as we quantify those emissions related to our conventional sources, I believe that market begins to build on our renewable sources, just like it did for fuel. That was pretty thorough. Uh, so th there is a, a question here and, and then maybe something that's more philosophical and maybe we cannot dictate much of that. So the question is, uh, do you think incorporating grazing practices into traditional confinement systems uh, would be a strategy to reduce the environmental impact of dairy production and gain carbon credits. And I, I'm just gonna link to that, this, I guess more philosophical is, as the dairy industry consolidates, probably every aspect, yeah, from the farm to the uh, retail store. Uh, in general, I guess the point that was made here by the person who asked, efficiency increases, or at least economic viability improves. However, the local footprint is much larger. Uh, uh, locally, a 5,000 cow dairy impacts more than a 50 cow dairy, although per unit of products less. So is that the right direction to reduce the footprint of animal agriculture? So just to, I'm not sure if I'm connecting both of those questions together, um, maybe the grazing one first. Well, grazing is usually never very large, yeah? so usually it's reduced oh. its size. Yeah, and I and I think that you know the, the grazing piece there there's there's some kind of compelling evidence that uh, perennial systems when they're when they're well grazed can increase soil carbon sequestration and ecosystem ecosystem services, you know things like water filtration and and uh, and water quality. So I, I think there is some evidence out there that is you know it's 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 interesting. I think because of the nature of our confined systems in the U.S., um, and certainly when we think about 
larger dairy operations, there are logistical challenges to engaging or to uh, to engaging in grazing. Um, but there may be some there may be some interesting possibilities there uh, to do some sort of you know intensive rotational grazing, some things like that 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 may offer some benefits on that carbon sequestration front. Um, we're going to do some work in our our, uh, our feed production research program that I, that I talked about earlier. Um, and I talked about the task one, where we're looking at better understanding opportunities as it relates to soil health. And we will be surveying some dairies that have grazing as one of those uh, advanced soil health management practices. So I, I hope we can capture some additional insights there to, to sort of add to that existing body of knowledge. And maybe there are some interesting opportunities that heretofore we haven't really given a lot of consideration to. So I'll stop there with that piece of it. But, but the other part of your question, I, I think was getting at, can we be environmentally efficient at larger scale? Is, is that fair? I think the mm -hmm. question that was asked, is that the right direction as an industry? Yeah? Obviously, we, you know, we don't dictate, that's economics, yeah? but as an industry, is that the right direction to, in theory, 9 million cows, 3,000 farms of 3,000 cows, I guess. That's probably how people were thinking, or spread the wealth across you know, more producers type of approach. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think we can dictate that. Um, so I, I think it's difficult to, uh, to sort of weigh in with what you know, I personally think should happen because I, I, I don't have a position on that. We, we are in the business of responding to and supporting dairy farmers of all sizes, as, as Caleb pointed out. Um, but, I, but I certainly think you can make a case either way. I think you can make a case that large dairy operations generate um, additional revenues. They have economies of scale um, that creates uh, perhaps greater opportunity for the adoption of technologies and the integration of practices um, at scales that sometimes are difficult uh, for smaller dairies. So I, I, I don't necessarily think big equates to bad. I, I absolutely don't think that whatsoever from an environmental perspective. But again, I'm, I just am not going to weigh in on how I think that the industry should or could evolve. Yeah, well, I, one thing that's important to remember is that we always think of this, have this bucolic vision of grazing that, but if you go to New Zealand, there's major problems with nitrates in water. So it's not always a free pass. Everybody has an impact. <laughs> well, I can tell you, we have significant challenges with nitrates in the Sauroquin Valley of California. There are now communities, uh, oftentimes um, minority type communities that uh, have nitrate levels that are so high that the surrounding dairies or that the dairies have to purchase drinking water to surrounding communities. And that's pretty drastic if you think about it. Uh, but that's already happening. So uh, there are locations within the United States that suffer from high nitrate levels, and we do have to think about that. That's uh, what I meant when I said earlier, let's not just think that the environmental sustainability, uh, sustainability picture is, is just methane or greenhouse gases. It is also other, uh, other components that are very important to keep an eye on. I think it's also important to think about some of these questions that are being posed for what they truly are. They are false dichotomies. They're not either or questions, you know, but yet we, a, lot of, a lot of people seem to just gravitate towards what is better, 
this or that. And every single one of those systems has um, you know, good aspects and also limitations, so advantages and limitations. It's, it's, it's a very specific you know, piece. You're, it's kind of like choose your poison type of, type of reality. So, Scott, still there? Yep, I'm still here. I'm gonna let you close. take over. Yeah, all right. Yeah, so we'll we'll call that as last call then, uh, Jose. Uh, we're getting close to the top of the hour here. And with that, um, I'd like to ask one final question of the panel and have each of you uh, answer it. And, and that is, what's one key takeaway that the audience should take away with them uh, from these discussions? And then what's one or two steps that uh, the audience can begin to take immediately as we progress toward uh, 2050? And why don't we start with, uh, I'm gonna start with Caleb since uh, you're, you're first in line on my screen there, Caleb. The easiest job, I get to go first. Uh, so um, big takeaway, you know, getting to net zero or getting to climate neutral or whatever we want to call doing better on the emission side does not mean that you are going to go broke going there. It does not mean that it's a threat to the existence of dairy, at least as far as all the people on this call are concerned. And as far as the U.S. dairy system that's behind you, uh, no one here conceives of these propositions without a corresponding economic value. And we're working very hard to build that value. I think that's one of the biggest anxieties of the entire program is here comes one more thing I have to do that's gonna cut into my already thin profit margin uh, for operating. So to Jim's point from earlier, that's why the program was set out at a distance. You know, that's one of the reasons um, we're responding to consumer demand that has trickled into our food brand demand that has trickled and, and goals that they've set that has trickled into our ag commodity groups and goals that they've set. You know, we're all working towards the economic viability of this proposition and it goes hand in hand with science. Um, so as far as something that you could do, you know, Shoot, I, I bet you that, that Jim's better at answering this for me because he comes from Nutrient and they have all kinds of tools that they've developed. NMPF has all kinds of tools that they've developed, but I don't want to speak incorrectly. So I'm going to pass that buck to Jim on that topic. But I will say that, you know, becoming more aware of, of the practices that we've described, doing a little bit of research into them yourself as much as you feel compelled to do. And then, you know, considering where does your milk go and to what products? I know a lot of it goes through a co-op and it's sometimes hard to know, but it's those that end of the rainbow group that's making these commitments because of consumer demand. And to, to Frank's point, that's the groups we need to reach and say, okay, you wanna meet your goal? You can't meet your goal without us. We are your supply chain, so let's work together. Uh, and so far that's been a very successful approach. Um, and, you know, I would just consider how to reach that audience or how to talk to your co-op about reaching that audience, what programs they might be thinking of. Um, yeah, and that's it. Thank you. Well, Jim, I think Caleb passed the ball to you. So why don't we just continue on with that? 
No, that, that sounds great. So as far as key takeaways, from my perspective, um, as we are on this journey to 2050, um, uh, I guess net zero, or if, if we talk about carbon neutrality, either or, um, it puts me in a place that is, is very hopeful. I guess that's one of my key takeaways. I'm very optimistic. I think that we are absolutely, uh, as an industry, on a trajectory to significantly impact through technology, through um, the adoption of practices, um, to impact in a meaningful way the production of both methane and N2O, I think, at the field level. So again, I guess I, I, my key takeaway is, is, is I'm optimistic. And, um, and as far as uh, sort of uh, you know, things that all farms could do, there, there are so many things that all farms can do, and I, I won't touch on the, the, uh, the enteric piece. I, that, that's Juan and, and Frank's space, but um, certainly on the feed production side, we are thinking about things, as, as I described, minimal disturbance tillage and, and cover cropping. Um, those are spaces that many dairies already engage in. Certainly, they are opportunities for um, those who aren't to think about and to evaluate. Um, and as we learn more in the coming two to, to five years on both the science piece of that, as well as the economic piece, I think we can help to really facilitate and support a, a rationale for adoption in that space. And then perhaps a final kind of point I'll make, um, again, staying with the theme of feed production, is that I think um, as an industry, considering feed shrink as a real opportunity for impacting our environmental footprint is, is real. We haven't given a lot of thought to it. Um, we haven't done a lot of work in, in sort of thinking through and, and quantifying what it actually is. Um, but that's something that I think everybody will hear more about. It's something that as a, as a, as a group, DMI, that we are going to be advancing some of the thinking on that. And um, so I'll stop there. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity again. Very much appreciated. All right, I'm gonna leave uh, our keynote speaker to last. So Juan, why don't you go ahead and yep. uh, give us your ideas? Yeah, mine are very quick. Um, the first highlight is that we know in which direction we need to go in terms of uh, enteric methane emissions. We know we need to reduce it. So we have clarity on that, which you know is, is great. The second element is that I am also hopeful, like, like Jim said before, because there's a number, there are a number of, uh, at least in the feed additive category of, of potential um, elements there that could, that could bring quite substantial reductions, which is something that a few years ago, not too many years ago, was just simply not even available. So, so, that's, so that's great. In terms of what, what um, all of you can do on, you know, on the other side here of the screen, um, you have to be a responsible user of information and consumer of information. So please, let's agree on which ones are the questions that we need to ask these people that are putting those potential solutions out there. You know, and let's ask those questions because these are important questions. At the end of the day, the burden of proof is, is on their side. You know, if somebody comes in and says, hey, you know, you need to do X or Y or, or, or practice in your farm, you, the burden of, of proof is on them. You know, show me that it reduces, show me how much it reduces. I need to see the variability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I put, I put some considerations out there. You know, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, to get us talking about it. You know, but we, we need to agree on those questions and we need to use them. We need to ask them because the burden of proof is there. We, we can't wait for, you know, the government to approve or, 
you know, like uh, in some of the written up comments, the question came up, you know, this is moving, you know, those Nestle's and Starbucks and bunch of other companies out there that are, have made commitments, they need to deliver, you know, we just need to be responsible users and consumers of information and ask the tough questions. Yeah, well said. Dr. Metlerner, final words, please. Well, well, first of all, thanks again for having me. I really appreciate this discussion. Um, I think that in this carbon discussion, this greenhouse gas discussion, I'm, uh, I'm also very optimistic because the industry has done uh, some incredibly important moves over the last few decades. Uh, we have drastically reduced the impact that we have on climate, drastically. And uh, we have quantified where we are currently, what the impacts are on, let's say, greenhouse gases. And we have set goals for the future, and uh, we have defined milestones to reach these goals. Uh, concurrently, science is developing new techniques, technologies uh, to help farmers fill their toolbox, the toolbox needed to make these reductions possible. And I think what's also really um, positive is that that country uh, companies like Nestle, Starbucks, and others are now saying we don't leave our farmers alone with that, but we want to support them. We want to support them because we are in this together. And, um, and you know, I want everybody to understand this is not some kind of greenwashing. This is not some kind of creative accounting. This is real. This is quantifiable, verifiable reductions of greenhouse gases. Our farmers can be part of a solution. And I think it's so important that the sector understands that, that, for example, methane reductions will have real positive climate impact, immediate positive climate impact. We can have that impact. We need to brag about that impact um, and, um, and, and be happy that uh, on the environmental side, this is really a situation that can be a win-win, not just an environmental win, but also an economic win. So I'm, I'm bullish about this topic and I think a lot can, can be done and has already been done. Yeah, thank you very much. Gentlemen, it's been a real honor to share the screen with you today. Uh, you're all very knowledgeable and I appreciate your passion for the industry. And I want to thank you for, for everything that you do for the industry. Again, if you want to watch the full recordings from the Florida Ruminant Nutrition Symposia session, your practical guide to achieving net zero carbon emissions, visit Balchem's YouTube channel. You'll find the recordings for all five speakers there. These presentations were very insightful, so bring your notebook. Thank you to all of our loyal listeners for stopping by the exchange once again to sit with us a while, and hopefully you'll learn something each time you come. If you like what you've heard, please remember to drop us a five-star rating on your way out. And don't forget to request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt. You just need to like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and shirt size to anh.marketing at valchem.com. Our Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with the ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.